Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. This is your Friday, February 3rd edition, the day after Groundhog's Day, and I am your host, William Hayashi. And today's special guest is actually a hometown friend of mine. His name is uh, Floyd Webb. I would characterize him as a multimedia artist. Um, He does a lot of things in film and production and well anyway we'll let him talk about that and uh i i'm gonna i would like to just say uh welcome to the show i'm glad you make it floyd oh thank you thanks thanks for inviting me mm-hmm. i said thanks for inviting now, because, me yeah uh, no i got it now yeah. now I, we never talked about you know, your earlier years, I mean, we bumped into each other at Azizi and a couple other places, mm-hmm. you know, some uh, Afrofuturism uh-huh. things. Um, mm-hmm. Did you grow up in Chicago? Are you a native? Uh, no, I'm from Mississippi. And we moved to Chicago oh. like everybody else did. Yeah, now. It was the Great, <laughs> the great Migration. Black migration. In 19, <laughs> great Migration in 1958. <laughs> well, that ain't bad. 58 is good. Yeah. How old were you then? I was uh, I was five. We moved to Chicago. Damn, you're old. Um, I, excuse yeah. me. I'm sorry. I'm just glad, I'm just glad for a change. You know, somebody older than me is on the show. Uh huh. Um. Now, yeah. uh, and and did you settle on the South Side or West Side or where did you where we did you um, end up? You, you know, like most people, we moved around. You know, uh, until we finally settled on the South Side. But I was on the West Side. I was on Drake. I was on Francisco, right off Roosevelt, and uh, we ended up on 22nd and State Street. That's where I started started elementary school. Oh man! And and then um, yeah, we kind of did the same thing until we started paying rent regular, and then we didn't have to move as often. But um, mm-hmm. now, and and what schools did you go to? I went to Haines School in Chinatown. Okay, and then for high school. For high school, I went a year or two. Lynn Bloom. Okay. Or as we said, Lynn Bloom. <laughs> right. We went to Lynn Bloom for. I went to Lynn Bloom for a year and then moved to Fort Benning, Georgia. And, uh, yeah. And I went to school there for a year and then ended up at Proviso East in Maywood after wow. my father went. My father came back from Vietnam, and uh, we moved to Georgia. Then he got stationed in Asia again and we moved on back to Chicago because my father my mother didn't mm-hmm. want to stay in Fort Benning. No. So yeah. yeah. Did you did you did you all have family here at that time and that's why she wanted to come back? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Most people were were moving back here. You know, most people were, were moving from the south up up to yeah. uh, up north, right? So 
So a lot of the families here, all of her brothers were here, and she wanted to come back. Yeah. You know, it is kind of funny. You know, we, we joke about the black migration, but mm-hmm. uh, most of that really started at the beginning of the 1900s, and mm-hmm. it was actually fostered by the Chicago Defender newspaper. Right. And right. what uh, what what the uh, the black Pullman and uh, uh, train employees would do is they would pick up bundles of the Chicago Defender up here in Chicago because Chicago was a huge railroad hub. Hold, and, hold, you know, on, hold on a second. Tra- oh, uh, ne- never mind. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go on. I. I, I can talk without you listening. Most people don't listen no, to me anyway. But no, I was but, listening. But seriously, uh, there, I just, there, mm-hmm. there were a couple migrations that actually occurred. There was the 1900s. There was like when Bronzeville took off, which was like 30s and 40s. And then there was kind of like a a mini um, kind of migration, which happened in the 50s and 60s. You know, people wanted to get into a bigger city. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny how we all ended up here because my, my mother was from Oklahoma and my dad was from, like, the Bay Area in San Francisco. They met in school in Wisconsin and they wanted to figure out a place where they could live where biracial children wouldn't be bothered. And so they thought about, you know, where they could go, kind of like the Bay Area in San Francisco, Hyde Park in Chicago, and... uh Matt, uh, what? what uh, I can't remember where in Massachusetts the other the other neighborhood was. So anyway, um, are you are you getting out of the car now? Oh no, I'm in the house. Oh okay. I'm All right. So I I'm going to presume that you know obviously you had a creative bent or you have one now. What? What areas of creativity manifested themselves like when you were, you know, school age, maybe, you know, late elementary, early high school? Well, you know, my mom taught us to read when we were, like, started us reading at two. So by the time uh-huh. we were four, we were, like, reading books. And we were reading books in the newspaper and, you know. But she started us out on the Bible when we were two and three. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I remember she used to come home from work, and we would spend, and we didn't have a television, so she taught us to read, you know. Even when the electricity went out, she, she would have candles, <laughs> you know. Make you, you, know, make you read anyway. Yeah, you, you know, and like, and so I, was, so I became a reader very early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Somebody uh, wants to know, well, wait, just real quick. Somebody wants to know, uh, because I, I, I want to, before we go too far, did you ever travel overseas because of your dad's deployment? Uh, no, but I traveled overseas after my dad's deployment. Oh, I okay. All I, right. I, yeah, I ran away from home when I was 20. <laughs> okay. All yeah, right. So, I, I, so you, you're you're an early reader. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And and as an early reader. Did you, I mean, did you have, did you engage in any kind of creative output as an early reader? And if you didn't have television, obviously you didn't have cartoons as, as kind of like an entertainment source. I got, um, I got, but, I got cartoons in 59. Okay. And then what about, um, 
What about cartoons comic books at that films. time? Cartoons I'm and sorry? silent films. And silent films. Okay. Lots of silent films were on television when I first started watching TV. All right, and then oh. now you, you, you said you ran away from home at 20? Well, what happened was I had been involved in a lot of political activity since I had been 11. Okay. And, uh, and um, I had um, participated in everything from the civil rights movement to the labor movement. You know, I had been in, in a UAW member when I was in high school. You know, my mom worked in factories out in Maywood. Uh-huh. And, and um, I got tired. And I wanted to be serious. In order to be serious, I had to go someplace where people were doing serious business. Mm-hmm. So I went to Tanzania. And I uh, I lived in a compound opposite Frelimo and Umkanto Wasizwe. And I used to train with these guys because a friend of mine was a martial arts instructor. We used to go out and train on the okay. beach every day with these guys, right? But I put myself into a situation where people talked about revolution here, but people were actually doing it there. Mm-hmm. And 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 how did you, were you drawn in as a participant? Mm-mm. No, I couldn't do that. I would lose my citizenship for doing something like that. Okay, all right. So so you're hanging with this group of, yeah. of people. I, I I presume they were guys, right? For the most part. Yeah. I, I left as a, I left here working as a photojournalist. The whole way that I was able to leave was because I had found the American Society of Magazine Photographers and discovered I could make drug dealer money as a photographer. It never occurred <laughs> okay. to me that I could make that kind of money as a photographer. So it's like, it's, you know, to, to be able to go on an assignment and make $250 a day, you know, in 1974, when I'm barely, when, when I ain't even 21 years old yet, right? was just amazing, you know what I mean? That's amazing to me. You know, it took me a whole week to make 250 bucks. And suddenly, you know, I you know, I found myself in a situation where I was exposed to American Society magazine photographers and I joined and I started getting assignments. And um uh, my decision to leave the United States was really like I had to watch I got I fell into politics, I don't know how because I was surrounded by a lot of people. Living on twenty second and State Street was really interesting. Let me tell you what Okay, 22nd and State Street. Two blocks away, one, two, three blocks away is the, is, is the Chicago Defending newspaper. Also three blocks away is Muhammad Speaks newspaper. Mm-hmm. Seven blocks away is Ebony and Jet magazine. Another three blocks away is Chess Records. Two blocks away from us is Chinatown that I have to go through every day. So sure. as a child, 
from the moment I hit the project, first thing I learned to do was hustle all of these places for nickels and dimes, taking out the garbage, doing this, going to get people sandwiches. I ran with the older guys that, that worked and did these errands all the time, right? And, like, we used to go to the, you know, we would go to Chess Records and wait for musicians to turn up to go up to the studio. We'd be in the alley and help them carry stuff up the stairs. You know? Sure. So I ran, you know, so I would see Mr. Burnett, you know. I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't call him Howlin' Wolf. He made me call him Mr. Burnett. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, and I met all of these people, you know, uh, Bo Diddley, all these people just hanging out over there, you know, in the front and the back trying to help people, you know, going to get barbecue, you know, from, I, I did that from like, I guess from about 59, about six. no, no, that was about 60, I think it was, that was about 60, 1960, um, because I was listening to the radio one time, I said, that's Bo Diddley, I just saw him the other day, I said, where? And he says, well, take me over there, I want to see what his place is, so we went over to Chess Records. It was okay. Yeah, but yeah, so I went to all of these places, and I, you know, I, I tell people I've been in publishing since I was five, <laughs> because I worked for all these news, newspapers, right? You know, right? Like, and like we would sell jet, right? I, I you know, I, I couldn't sell jet by myself, but I could go with the guys. But, um, but we used to deal directly with Mister Johnson. So that's how and, I grew up. Um, Another part of okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Another, another go ahead. part of it. My interest in science came through my father, who was a radar man at Nike Missile Facility C40 in Burnham Park on the lake. Back oh no, I 1950s, know it well. Yeah, back in the 1950s, during the Cold War. There were Nike missile bases. There were like, I think there were about 20 Nike missile bases in the Chicago area. Yeah, and most of them were along the lakefront. And most of them were along the lake lakefront. But um, so my dad worked with uh, Fifth Army. And, um, you know, uh, back then, Fifth Army headquarters was uh, based at uh, Chicago Beach Hotel. Like, you couldn't, Which, you know, when you when you, when well, you come off, off of uh, 47th Street. When, when oh, you, no, when it was off, right there. It was it was right there at the end of East End Park at uh, at, at uh, High Park Boulevard Yeah, and Cornell. A, when you came off of Lakeshore Drive at 47th Street, you couldn't turn along that, you know, that little uh, road along the uh, east side of the uh, railroad tracks. There would, there right, be because that was private. There. Right, that right. was a guard post. Right, right. So you couldn't go in the guard post because that's where Fifth Harmony headquarters was up in there. That was where we used to come from the projects. I, I used to get on the High Park bus and come to the dentist because we were we were like uh, we were uh, army dependents. So we were, right. so we got our we got all of our, all of our medical and dental and everything done. Um, done at at uh, uh, Fifth Army before Fifth Army moves out, out to Fort Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because of that, I, because I got, man was a radar man, I got all involved in rockets and stuff. Okay. I was already watching. I actually. Like, mm-hmm, I'm sorry. See, I grew up. I grew up. No, no. I grew up in the neighborhood there. 
And 5th Army headquarters was there. And because, you know, a lot of um, officers were billeted in the area, mm-hmm. the tennis court, the tennis courts at 53rd and Lakeshore Drive were clay courts. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we got to play on these beautifully manicured clay courts because not a lot of soldiers would actually be playing on them. So they let they I learned how to play tennis on on those courts, and I ironically, what, right? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I remember those those courts. Oh yeah, and then uh, we used to hang out over on the point, which is on the other side of Lakeshore Drive, and we would always be shooting the crap with the uh, the soldiers who were manning the um the the radar and mm-hmm. the. Uh, the, the twin missile installations right in our neighborhood. Yeah. You know, in the summertime, when my father first started working in the missile battery, um, uh-huh. it, would, it would get really hot, right? So he would come and get us in the middle of the night on his lunch break. He would come and get us and take us down to the beach, and we would sleep on the beach while he went back to work. Mm-hmm. And when he got off work, he'd come and get us, and they were raising the missiles up. You know, they were, like, raise, they would like exercise the uh, mechanisms every day. Right. But, no, so, I remember. Uh, you know, so as we were waking up, half asleep, I remember these missiles coming up. And as you drove down Lakeshore Drive from, especially if, if you went from Lakeshore Drive, uh, like, going north or something, to, to, go, to, right. the, uh, to go to Lincoln Park, Park Zoo, you would see these missiles would be just up all along, you know, like you would go from, from Burnham Park, then I think next one was was Belmont. And I think there was one more. I can't remember where, where that one more was. But there was, there was one. Yeah, it was between um, – they had one between Fullerton and Belmont, and then they did have one up north, just mm-hmm. short of Hollywood, just mm-hmm. short of Hollywood. Um, and of course, this is inside baseball for us, and nobody gives a damn about that. But I mean, it was it was such a cool time to grow up in Chicago. I mean, mm-hmm. there is no doubt about it. And then you, you're right in the thick of of really, I would say, black society. Not mm-hmm. not as a participant, but as a photographer and and a, you know almost like a documentarian. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you got to do other than hanging around and chasing down barbecue? Well, I didn't really start doing photography until I um, – well, actually, I started photography when I was in seventh grade. My father said okay. me camera in Vietnam, and I had a little, little Kodak Brownie camera. Later, he sent me a Super 8 camera. And I had a teacher at Haines School who was a photographer by the, by the name of Melvin Gaynor. So he used to take pictures of, of, of us all the time. And he had tried to get me to join the uh, Washington Park Camera Club. But but, but I, I didn't ever do it. I did end up going down to Washington Park and, and doing wood, wood shop, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I had started writing about them, too. I was trying to write little stories and things. And, you know, and I was reading everything. Man. I was reading, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, like science fiction. My father sent me the great book series. Uh, while he was in Vietnam, this is all stuff that soldiers got, you know. So one day I get a right. big, I, I get like three big boxes of books, and it's the Great Book Series. 
So I tried to read all of that stuff, you know. So I was really, you know, so I was uh, I was curious, man. I was, like, more curious than anything. I was a really bad stutterer, so I didn't really hang out and talk a whole lot. You know, I didn't hang out with people a lot. Well, so, so, yeah, so that's where kind of, like, I really got started was, but what, what happened was this. I went to the Army. I mean, I went off to Fort Benning, and I was in ROTC. Right. Kind of was like on the way to West Point and stuff. So my father got back and got back to went got sent back to Vietnam, and we came back here. I got politicized. I was already politicized down there because I had encountered some races, but nothing like up here. All right. I mean, we could have had people kind of threaten us down south. Well, once they knew we we weren't having it, and if it wasn't but two or three of them. And it was two or three, and, and it was two or three of us, or even if it was two of us, they wouldn't mess with us, right? Because mm-hmm. they knew, because they knew the raffle was like, I was like desperate Negroes. <laughs> no, I had seen the smallest, I had seen the smallest brothers take down some big, big old peck of woods. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, the smallest cats, man, they would jump up and cold cockatoos. <laughs> But uh, when I came back to Chicago, man, I got uh, I started. I think I got thrown out of school within two weeks of coming back up here. Really? I didn't I didn't know all the rules, and I didn't know that like I, there was a side of the lunchroom I couldn't go on. Okay. <laughs> and I was in chess club. So I and and these and the chess club people were really the only guys that I knew. Chess club and computer club, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were dealing with IBM fourteen oh ones. Right, and um, so I so I go over there to sit with these guys, and this dude told me I can't sit over there. I said, "Wow, cause you're a nigger." And I said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" I was like, "I was like, huh?" I said, "You know, I just moved here from Georgia. Nobody in Georgia mm-hmm. ever called me a nigger, not to my face." Mm-hmm. And you know, and we kind of got to talking, and the boy kind of walked up, but you know, he he. I thought he was jumping up out of his seat, and when he went to jump up out of his seat, by he he ran right into my fist, and his nose broke. And um, and next thing you know, we're headed to the bathroom to finish the fight, and all and five of his friends come in, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna have to fight all five of these guys, you know, and uh, and but but nobody made a move. He's checking his nose because because it happened so fast, nobody knew what happened. Right. None of them. None of them saw him get. None of them saw me tagging. And and that was why you had to leave school. I got thrown out of school the second week. Oh man. For a month. And so then what? Oh, for a month. Okay, so you did get to go back. Yeah. 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 Well, I got involved in. uh, I got involved in some anti-war stuff. Because uh-huh. I had, I had Mark because living in, oh, the other place I didn't, I, I forgot to mention, Quinn Chapel Church, which was the outpost for the Underground Railroad. That was on 24th and, and Wabash. That was a church that I went to. Mm-hmm. Because I went to the church, Martin Luther King was based there when he came up here uh, to fight for fair housing. So we were in that little group that went to Gage Park. <laughs> 
when he marks on Gage Park. When he oh, yeah, I remember. And and all of us young cats was like, okay, this after nonviolence for us, right? Um, we were done after that, you know. So my political life kind of starts there. And when I come back from Georgia where I was supposed to go to West Point and all that crap, um, you know, they got mad at me because I wrote a paper about Ho Chi Minh. Because I found out that Ho Chi Minh, because one of my mentors, a guy named Hammurabi, he was like a lay historian. He was a lawyer. Guy was trained as a lawyer at Northwestern University. But he was a black history buff. And he put out black history calendars. And he used to come through the projects all the time. Um, he had a place called the House of Knowledge that was right behind Margaret Burroughs' house where she had the African-American History Museum before they had a place. So Hammurabi used to, used to give us all kinds of information. And I spent my weekend and my, my Sunday afternoons were sometimes spent at Miss Burroughs' house because, because uh, I was taken over there by a, uh, a classmate of hers by the name of Robert E. Lee Jones, who was a sculptor. And uh, Charlie, Charlie Burroughs, Margaret Burroughs' husband, was a black Russian. He was born in Russia. I'm sorry, he was born in New York, but his mom moved him to Russia when he was about eight or nine. His mom went there okay. and worked for the intern. So he grew up in Russia and came back to join the Army during World War II. His brother stayed in Russia. Mm-hmm. Consequently, you won't believe this, consequently, Charlie Burroughs' brother, whose name I can't really remember, he stayed in Russia. And this dude back in the back in the eighties, he retired from the Navy, the Russian Navy, as an admiral of a nuclear submarine. Crazy. Man. Absolutely crazy. Now I wouldn't know that sitting here, but I was in Amsterdam and one of my history teachers was there. The guy that uh, taught me at um at Northern Illinois University. And he told me about it, right? I said, what? <laughs> you know, but Charlie, man, uh, between Charlie, Hammurabi, and Miss Burroughs, I got a thorough, I got a thorough history, you know. Uh-huh. I got a real thorough, uh, uh, especially a history of uh, black Chicago, because that's what, that's what, uh, what Hammurabi's uh, specialty was. He put out all these publications, and he had these books that he published back in the 30s and 40s. But but he he did a history of Chicago from like 1751 to 1927, then another one 1721. I'm, I'm sorry, 1751 to 1951. You know, he was he was he was like re- revising this thing all the time. Well, well, what was it that made you turn? You know, you sounded a little bit in, uh, introverted. You had the stutter. Um, you obviously you were intelligent. What, what was the triggering, you know, impetus for you to start turning your creativity outward? You know, whether the fo- photography, whether it's filmmaking, what what was it kind of like the the onset of that part of of your life? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, my grandfather was a carpenter. My father was a soldier who then became a carpenter. 
so we've always had handy, so we've always had people in the family that were creative in a way. In, in terms of the arts, you know, we didn't have anybody from the arts, except uh, my great-grandfather was a, on my father's side, was a cornet player that had a string band. And I always liked music. I used to make bamboo flutes and all that. Because you know, when I was coming up in Mississippi, we had a, we had a flute tradition, a, 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 a drum and fife tradition. And the flutes were made out of cane. That name, um, what was his name? Uh, Napoleon Strickland, Mississippi Delta Blues Band. It was it was it was drum and drum and uh, and reed flute. You can look it up uh-huh. on the internet. You can you can, no, you no, can find we, it. We can't do that. Cause we're going to talk about you though, <laughs> as mm-hmm. much as you want to avoid but, it. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying if people, I'm just saying if people want to want to know who this cat is. Napoleon Strickland and the Mississippi Delta Blues Band. Oh they, no no no! I didn't mean I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean to mm-hmm. cut it off that way because I actually mm-hmm. looked up Charlie Burroughs while we were talking. Mm-hmm. But seriously, mm-hmm. when I, you know the people, you know you're here to tell people the the the, the development of your creative output, and and you know I you and I have talked a little bit about film, you know mm-hmm. before things like that. You know was it was it the movie camera that kind of, you, you know, you obviously you were handy. Obviously, you were curious. Obviously, well, you know, when cool, new cool things came to you, you played with them. So I'm just kind of curious when it all started for you. Well, it really started when my, when my cousin, when my father, um, when my father was in the Army, when my father went back to the Army, actually, um, because he 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 had joined in '58, but he had been in the army before, and there was a period that my I had a cousin named Joe, and Joe used to come and get me after my father went away to the army before he came back and to, to work as a radar man. He used to come get me and take me. I was living on Drake back then. That must have been fifty, must have been '58. So Joe would come get me every week, and we would go downtown to the museums. Right. So I go to we would go to the art institute. We go to the planetarium, we go to the aquarium, and then then on other times we would go to the Museum of Science and Industry. So mm-hmm. he was exposing me to this stuff all the time, and I was fascinated by a lot of this stuff. Right now, another thing he did is we would go to the speaker's corner where we went to. We would go and watch the cricket players. You know, I had never seen anything like this. It, it didn't make no sense, but we would walk a long way. Right, we would get off the bus, I think, on Cottage Grove. We, we we would take that Roosevelt bus downtown, and then I think we took the King Drive bus or something, and end up at Washington Park. We walk across the park, and because uh, he 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 knew some people over there, you know, he would go and play softball. But sometimes we would stop at the they had like a speaker's corner, and do you know he told me? Well, I guess I must have been a teenager, and he came in the house. He came to visit me one time, and he saw I had a record by Sunrise. He said, "You still listen to that old crazy man?" I said, we're crazy. Man. We used to see this. I said, we used to see this man in the park when you was a little, little, little baby. Said, right. Really? Sun Ra used to speak in the park, man. Um, they had a they had a bunch of guys who were into the occult, who were into philosophy, and they would speak out there, right? They had people from the Psychic Institute. Uh, you know, Chicago's got an incredible psychic tradition. You know. 
there is a there's a tradition of the occult of, of the black occult that goes back a long way, and Sun Rock came out of that, right? But see, I didn't know all this stuff until my uncle started telling me, and I and I started investigating, and I finally met Ra one day, and we talked about that a little bit, you know. But that's but you know, but like that was but see, seeing all that made me want to do stuff, and like I always wanted to build stuff, so I was always ordering, I was always ordering Estes model rockets, I was always buying you know, uh, model planes and go to Radio Shack and get a crystal radio set. I was always doing that kind of stuff because, you know, I, that's how I kept busy because my mom didn't like me being outside. So. Mhm. Did you build any heat kits? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Did a oh, okay. heat kit. Um, heat kit crystal radio, I think it was. Mhm. And I think um, did I do the transistor radio? No, I think a friend of mine did the transistor radio. I I did the crystal, which which was too too quick, but um, but yeah, man, I was always flying rockets and model planes, and you know, trying to invent stuff, taking apart transistor radios. <laughs> no, we were we were we were we were a mess. We didn't have time to shoot nobody. Matter of fact, you couldn't get a gun. You could make a zip gun. We did make a zip gun right. one time. <laughs> Oh, just so that you know, you know who the big gun dealer was on the south side? Who, who was that? I think it was called Berman's Hardware. It was on 53rd and Dorchester. Uh, a couple of Jewish guys owned it, but they were the they were the one of the biggest south side gun runners. Oh, really? Yep, in Hyde Park, of all places. All right, let's circle back mm-hmm. to you, because mm-hmm. you don't want to talk about you, but mm. I, I want to... Uh, you you you're stimulated by this host of all kinds of creative things going on around you. People talking, um, building things. Um, obviously, you had. I mean, you you must have had great, you know, mad building skills. You know what I mean for doing the creative thing. Also doing the, you know, doing the 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 radio kits and things like that. But but when did when did that transition to? whatever your beginning artistic output was, well, whether it be photography, film, whatever. When I got involved with ASMP, but what really set it off was I went, used to be a dark room at the Southside Community Arts Center, which once again was across the street from the, from, from the boroughs in the House of Knowledge. So Southside sure. Community Arts Center had a dark room, and an active photographer's community. Mm-hmm. And that's really what pushed me out there, you know? I mean, I, um, I I had taken photography when I was in junior college after I got out of school at, at, at Triton. And, uh-huh. But, the, but I decided to exhibit some stuff. And I won a couple of contests, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, Buckingham Fountain Art Fair, Lake Lake Meadows Art Art Fair, you know. So I won a bunch of those things. I got published in the Defender, and I was on the way. But but it's it's really this guy Ralph, um, Jose, Jose Williams. These are all my idols, man. Uh, as uh, photographers, plus uh, Jose played uh, played, played bass clarinet. And I was playing flute, you know. So these these, these guys were were my idols, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. 
and they were really, really helpful. You know, uh, I, used to, I used to go down to the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, Chicago Today, and I would hang in the photo room and talk to the photographers and show them my work, you know. So I wasn't scared to go places, man. I'd just get up and go, you know, like back then. You could just walk in a place. And, um, oh, sure. And like, uh, you know, and like, uh, you know, it, it would always be, go away, kid, you're bothering me. <laughs> you know, it would, it would always be, go away, kid, you're bothering me. And then they would be like, well, come back tomorrow and we'll talk, you know. I'd go in and they would give me advice on my photographs and stuff, you know, about, you know, about keeping the negatives clean, you know, about, you know. Sure. Um, you know, people, people were really help, helpful to you, black and the white, white photographers, you know. Um, so, you know, so, I mean, that's where it came from, man. It's like I just put myself in situations. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough to, to, to be scared of, of certain things. Mm-hmm. What do they call that? That that's like the ignorance of youth. You know, you don't know what mm-hmm. to be scared of. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and I... and so what? Okay, go ahead. Go on. Mm, go on. I'm I was going to ask you. So what was your what was your first regular paying gig? My first regular paying gig was cleaning out nasty ass aluminum garbage cans in Chinatown. Wow. That was my decent paying job. We go to remember back then they didn't they didn't have plastic. You used to line your garbage cans with newspaper. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine when you put a bunch of Chinese food in newspaper about a couple of weeks, that stuff is stuck to the side. So you so you use some rubber gloves, some lye, and a long metal brush. And you use they didn't the have lye. they didn't have big yeah they didn't have garbage bags big garbage bags back then right. Mm-mm. Then my my other little jobs. Plus, I always had I always had a hustle. Whether it's picking up pop bottles from store to store, and 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 going to uh, and and uh and um taking them in and getting two cents on a bottle. That's how I mm-hmm. got. You know, that's how I bought all of my comic books. We would spend the morning picking up pop bottles, taking them to the store. By two o'clock in the afternoon, we had enough money to get two Marvel comics, or to get a three pack of, of uh, DC comics, right? And a, and a pop go sit under a tree someplace and enjoy the day. You know, that was or yeah, and then library. Or, or we would go to the li- li- uh, to the uh, library. We would go to the to the uh, Chicago Public Library downtown in Washington, and go to mm-hmm. the listening room and go to the listening room and listen to all the strange music on the record, uh, all all of the strange foreign music that they had in the uh, uh, the folkways uh, the folk folkways music. You know, we would listen to the same stuff. Some of our teachers would would uh would let us listen to. So when we discovered that there was a room at the library where we could go and just sit and do that with some headphones, we right. were right there. So we so okay. you know, um so my my summers were full days until I got to be a certain age and then they started because they always sent me down south, but there was one period man where I couldn't get out of school good before I was in a car headed down to Mississippi. You know? 
Immediately after, immediately after uh, Emmett Till got killed, I didn't go. But I think mm-hmm. that's the summers that I didn't go. But that, but but that third summer after Emmett Till died, I was right back down there every holiday and right after school. School ended. <clears throat> I would be riding with with uh, with one of my uncles. And, and what would you do down there? I mean, were you taking photos? Were you doing anything at all that people want to know about anything. your life about? Back then, back then, no, back then I wasn't doing anything. One, photography was really not. Um, well, if they would have seen you with a camera, they would have assumed that you stole it, and then that's your ass. Pretty, pretty much. But my, um, I really, I really fell into photography while I was in my last couple of years of high school. I started, I started shooting pictures of, of demonstrations and things, and I got a Super 8 camera from my father. While he was still in Vietnam at that time too, so I was I was documenting that kind of stuff. All that stuff is lost, unfortunately. And um, um, and it was it was really when I got into ASMP that I really kind of fell deep into it. You know, the fact that I just the the fact that I even got into the ASMP always shocked the hell out of me. What does that stand for? Uh, the the American Society of Magazine Photographers, right? Okay. You know, the, you know, the, you know, just the mere fact I became a student member was impressive to me because I never expected. I didn't know what you know. It was like, huh? I can do this, you know? I mean, it's like nineteen seventy seventy one after right right after high school, and um, and it opened up you know, and and it opened up it opened up some doors for me, and it gave me a way to travel, and it gave me a way to work. Without having to punch a clock, but it's probably yeah. Your time was your own, time. right? You're, were, were you sent on assignments, or were you kind of like freelancing? I was I was freelancing, and I was sent on assignments, and I would take pictures and sell them to agencies. You know, so I had so I got work in the uh, in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and you know, like just you know, just you know, just in the course of doing so, people would see pictures that I had done and want to and want to uh, uh, to uh, collect them. The funny thing is, I didn't take I didn't take it that serious because I figured I was always going to take another picture. So the one that I shot yesterday really didn't have a lot of value to me. Okay. You know? Yeah. Unless I could sell it. <laughs> but you were more um, like it sounds like you were more of a like a in the moment documentarian. At least mm-hmm. that was what your your what held your interest. You're right, You're right. Um, and and so I'm assuming this is mostly in Chicago because I can't imagine. Honest to God, man, I can't imagine you taking pictures down south. You know what I'm saying? Not no, not at that time. Down south. I left I left Chicago and went to Europe. I okay. Went to Europe. I went to Europe, England, and then I traveled across Africa by land. For about how long? Uh, that was about a that was about six month trip. No, that was a four month trip across uh, across Africa, and then I got uh-huh. to, then I stayed in I stayed in Tanzania for about another six months, and went away to Congo and then came back. So I was in Africa off and on about a year before I came home. Did you shoot it all during that time? Yeah, 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 I did. 
and um, and I came well. I came back home in '76 and went back to college. But I had been living in England for a long time. I was I was working. England was actually very good to me. Mm-hmm. I got offered a studio, but I didn't, you know. But I wasn't ready to stop, you know. Plus, the guy offered me somebody else's job called a guy was on vac- vacation. I was like, oh no, I'm not getting involved with this kind of stuff, you know. And uh, and mm-hmm. and I had to get get to Tanzania, you know. I mean, I had to. You know, that was my purpose for, for going. My, my my purpose was to get was to get in in the seat a revolution, you know, to find out how people lived in you know, how people lived in a, in a transforming society. What these other human human beings were like. You know? Yeah. I don't I yeah. didn't have a romantic view. I had a you know, my, my view was very political because I was reading everything. I was reading the Milcar Cabral. I was reading France Fanon. <laughs> I was reading C.L.R. James and uh, Walter Rodney, as well as uh, uh, as as well as Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and and uh, and uh, and Philip K. Dick and F.M. Busby. You know that you know I I had a field jacket. It's so funny, man. I had a field jacket. I would have a book in every pocket. I That's pretty good. Pockets. Well, and and it was two and all pockets. from the golden age, huh? Mm-hmm. And all from the golden age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would, you know, right. I would read, you know, you know. So I was in and out of used bookstores all the time. I was looking at photography, every kind of photography. Um, it was a book that kind of stopped me doing doing uh, photography, really. I mean, it stopped me doing mm-hmm. uh, photojournalism. You know, as a photojournalist, I was like really, I was really conflicted in some of the things that that I, I uh, witnessed. You know, I, I shot a housing riot in Amsterdam, and watched the cops beating the people. And yeah, people get their heads split open. Was like, um, it bothered me more than I realized it would. You know, it. Um, Was it it evocative of what was going on or what went on very shortly before that here in this country? Or was it just the visceral? Yeah, it was the whole thing about power, you know, the whole whole thing about power, you know, about how people handle power, how how people either use or, or, um, or abuse power, you know. And, you know, I used to have a recurring dream about uh, being in an airport and you know in a in a uh, waiting room wait, waiting on the plane to arrive. And I would walk out to go to the bathroom and I'd come back and somebody would have shot up the whole place and everybody was all over the floor bleeding. Oh and, man! And I'm you know and I'm and I got to make a decision: do I take pictures of it or do I help people? And uh, this this airport worker is there. He's got a little little disc camera. He says, right. look through the camera, look through the camera. It all changes when you look through the camera. Just just look through. And he just walked up to all the mutilated bodies and just started taking pictures with his little disc camera. Uh-huh. And I was just disgusted. You know? But, uh, yeah, but th- that happened to me after I started reading Susan Sontag on photography. That, mm-hmm. that, that's what happened after I read that book, where she talked about that, about how these images 
you know, no, because because it always got me how all the prize-winning photographs of black people were always poor, starving in Biafra, starving in Ethiopia. You know, I mean, it's like that's all I got to do is go someplace where black people are starving, and I can get a, you know, I can get a, a get an award, get a prize, yeah. you know, and and that's, that that's just always bothered me, you know. So I ended up doing studio photography for a long time and doing, and uh, I I hated fashion, but I got paid a lot of money to do it. Um, but I got bored with that too. Yeah. I did too, but I like I I did I I'm I'm gonna tell you I did like being around scantily clad women, but that's just me. Well, um, well, <laughs> well, 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 I, I found a way to be around scantily clad women without being in the fashion industry. <laughs> yes, but I got paid for it. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, okay, so. So there you are as, as you know obviously you're you're honing your skill in terms of getting the eye you know getting your eye to to frame mm-hmm. up things to 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 document you know as as the little cat said with the uh the little uh, uh disc camera you know you, what what you see how you capture it what whatever draws your eye is going to be is going to make a decent shot um did you what? Did you go from still photography? Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get the you know your evolution to the present. Um, oh. Did you and and you mentioned you know getting that 16 millimeter um, movie camera? Did, did you make a transition in that time or very shortly after that from still well, to mo- motion? I always wanted to be a filmmaker. Okay. But I only had still cameras. I only knew still photographers, right? Okay. But I didn't ever know any filmmakers. I didn't know anybody who who made movies. So it wasn't until I got uh, my Super 8 camera that I started messing around with it and and really trying to do something. Um, but still, it's like I started making money as a still photographer. I started making money as a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. When I was in, when I was in high school, and we were, I was in my junior year, and I went to see the counselor, and he asked me what I wanted to do. You know, we went to go, and I said, "Well, I think I want to go to film school." He says, "There are no schools for films." I said, "What?" He says, "Yeah, there's a." He says, "You would do better to go and study a trade, go and study some." Automotive or or, or lace operating, something like yeah, that. or, or being a, be a welder or something. Oh yeah, oh yeah, right. right. And so I went to the library that, that next day, found all these schools. UCLA had a film course. Um, um, New York University had a film course, and I took them back. Mm-hmm. And he said. He said, oh, these aren't for you. And I was like, really? And the funny part about it is my mom kind of agreed with it. Yeah, but, you know, she wasn't looking at it from an artistic perspective. She was looking not. at, at it, for, you know. She was, she yeah, was, no, the, absolutely the, not. The they, parents, didn't, they didn't do this out of spite, you know. Parents, no, no. Parents only know what they know. They they only know what they know. I didn't blame her, really. 
you know. But right. I blamed him for siding with the white guy. That's what I blamed him for. Even though you knew she just wanted to make sure that you could make a good living? You know, but, you, you know, William, when I was um, when I was about 17, I used to read whole, whole Earth magazine all the time, right? Oh, me too. Yeah, okay. Because Whole Earth always had the great, always had the good shit in it, you know? I mean, it was always the yeah. It was like reading Popular Science and Popular Mechanics, man. I added but on steroids. I added that to my library. I was like a month. I'm still a monthly popular science, popular mechanics junkie. Okay. You know, those are two magazines. I kept subscri- I, I, I kept subscriptions to those things forever. Since I was a kid, I've had subscriptions to popular science and pop, popular mechanics magazine. Because it's always about recent innovations. It's always about what's next, you know. Before technology, it was like I was I was telling my son, no, we didn't have the internet when I was a kid, but we had shortwave radio, you know. And we also had libraries, and there was and there was and there was like like C C B radios, and we and, mm-hmm. and we had the you know and, and we had the Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> you know, in the library. That's right. And we had microfilm. You know, but for the internet kind of thing, I had, I told him about shortwave radio and CB radios, because that's how we would because that's one of the first ways we got connected in a popular way was through these radios. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so we've always been connected electronically ever since we learned how to trans 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 transmit. You know, anything you could transmit and receive. You know, there's always somebody always trying to get a date. <laughs> You know what I mean? Somebody's already looking for a cute chick that they ain't ever that they wouldn't meet meet otherwise using tech technology, because you know sex is a big sex is a big driver of technology for those people. Yes, it is. Huge, that. huge motivator. Huge you know, motivator. You know, it's it's the it's it's the sex people in technology who get there first. <laughs> I, I was working okay. at Playboy for a while. You know, I, I worked for Playboy as the interim art director back back in the nineties. And um, and uh, we had to review all of these websites, man. It was just like, I mean, I got so tired of that. But we had to review these websites all the time, you know, to kind of keep up and and just to be in the know with like what was happening, you know. And 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 um, you know, because I had real questions about whether Playboy was was going to survive because they were, you know, you know, it was kind of outdated magazine, you know. Um, you know. Uh, well, sure, uh, by the nineties, yeah. Hustler came along and dumped, dumped it all the way down, and uh, Pen, Penthouse was showing what Playboy wouldn't show, you know. So all of these, so but like my my you know but like my stay there was short short lived. It was very short lived. Um, I couldn't. Uh, it was you know I got bored. I got bored. Yeah. You know all those women look oh, like. You know. You know. Oh. Let me mm-hmm. let me go back though. Mm-hmm. You know, you got your mom looking out for you. You got everybody around you saying, "Well, you know, film is not where you want to be." What yeah. was it that that where that made you sidestep all of that and get into it anyway? And then how did well, you break in? Well, I um I had been away. I, I, had, I had been living in England and France, and I had a couple of friends that had news that worked in newspapers. And I was still working newspapers. I was, so I was working with West Indian World for a minute, and 
for another couple of left-wing papers in England. And uh, I went away, came back home and went to college. And I came out and um, all of my friends were going into film. All my friends that I had kind of, you know, all those guys in Europe that I had kind of grown up with were going into uh-huh. film. And, um, and then a high school friend of mine named Joe Hoffman became the executive director of Chicago Filmmakers downtown. And he said I should come come by because we had started out, you know, trying to make films when we were in, in high school. Mm-hmm. So he's running Chicago Filmmakers, and I started working down at Chicago Filmmakers as a projectionist. And um, and uh, and I actually made a film on a dare. Joe dared me to make a film because I, you know, because I, I I was there projecting, watching stuff. I mean, I, I got a good good education uh, from watching, and I also went to the community film workshop. Uh, I went to there with like weekly series. I, I started, I think I went to that weekly series. Yeah, I went to the weekly series um, back in the back in the early 70s, about 1972 or 73 before I left the country. But I had tried to go mm-hmm. to the program and I ended up having to go a couple of times because I was working at Gamma Photo and I couldn't get off uh, in time to get there. And, you know, Jim Taylor was like, only way you could get in in the in, in the film classes, you had to go to ten, you had to go to ten consecutive screenings on Wednesday nights, and I would get to four, I would get to six. One time I got to nine. Oh no! And got there late, and it didn't count, and I had to go all the way back to the beginning, right? And um, mm-hmm. but 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 what I got was a good education in film because we saw stuff every week. I mean, good, you know, good, good classic uh, uh, cinema. And he had some film students come over and lead the uh, discussions about the film, about the te- technique, about what we were seeing, you know, about the emotions and how the screenplay, you know, and the scripts. So, so that was very, very helpful. Uh, that was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I when I made that film um, at Chicago Filmmakers. I, I told Joe, not only am I going to make the film, but I'm going to make the film pay for itself within six months. And I made the film, and I got it paid for within six months. And I got it shown wow. in the festival, and I got, invested, I got invited to a festival in England. And it was an experimental film because I didn't have enough money to make the kind of a – I didn't have a money, enough money to make the film I wanted to make, so I turned it into an experimental film. Mm-hmm. And what was your budget? Do you remember? Oh, I think I spent about six hundred dollars, and then that's the a end, prince, that's a princely sum sum in uh, nineteen seventy money. Yeah, and then I got a grant, and, I, and it gave me a thousand dollars to make prints and get it uh, distributed. Wow. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I got it. Yeah, and I got it into a uh, the St. Louis Art Museum had a had a. Uh, had a, a series had a uh, traveling show called Black on Black, and the film okay. was in that. Over, it, so the film traveled all over the country in that series. You know, um, that was my first film. Uh, wasn't very good. <laughs> oh my god, it sucked so bad. But hey, it's my first film. Yeah. Well, not only that, but stop and think yeah. about the distribution you had for for yeah. your first film. Yeah, yeah, I know, but it was just a horrible little film, you know. And um, it, it, it well, Wilkerson was in it. It, it Wilkerson was in it. So, so from there, what happened? Um, I, um, 
I uh, met this guy, Warrington Hudson, from the from the uh, Black Filmmakers Foundation, and um, and I they distributed my film also, and um, and I got involved with them. And there was a lady here actually. Uh, she did a she did a black film festival I think in 1981 or 80 yeah I think it was 1981 she she did this film festival we uh, I used to be part of a thing called the uh, the the um, South Side the uh, I'm sorry the Progressive Arts Center on 14th in Michigan okay we were, it was four of us we had a, we we had a photo studio and there were two carpenters and a tailor. Two two photographers, two carpenters, and a tailor, and we shared mm-hmm. that space on 14th and Michigan, up on the second floor, and we had that place about four or five years, and we had it. We used it as a as a screening room, as a concert hall, as an art gallery, as a studio. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was really laid out, and, and the rent wasn't that much either. Rent was about. Rent was about three hundred dollars a month. <laughs> so, oh my God, that's crazy. We have four thousand yeah. square feet. Four thousand square feet for about three hundred fifty dollars a month. Yeah. That ain't bad. That no. ain't bad at all. Yeah. And so we had a lot of activities. You know, uh, Bob Marley came up one time, and we gave him a naming ceremony. Um. Yeah, uh, we had a we used to have something called un- underground fest in this space, you know. So we were doing doing concerts all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and I was still traveling. I, I was still traveling back and forth. You know, I was still going back and forth to Air, uh, Africa and to uh, uh, Europe, you know, because I had been mm-hmm. I started meeting a lot of people, you know. Like I had, you know, once I went, went to the festivals. I started meeting a lot of filmmakers, and then I started a film festival called Blacklight Film Festival, which I which um, I used to regret it because it kind of got in the way of me doing films, and um, and it kind of took a lot of energy out of my my at the time I should have been making films. But the festival influenced a lot of people. It actually introduced a lot of people and and put a lot of people in the industry. You know, we 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 opened Spike Lee's uh, first film here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, both of both of them. We you know uh, the film we we showed the film he got the student academy award for Joe's uh, Joe's Bedside Barbershop we cut heads and we uh, we pre- premiered um, um, uh, she's she's got to have it at the Fine Arts Theater um, I had been you know I, um, I I was actually I actually got offered a job by by Island Island Pictures uh, behind some of the stuff that I had been been doing with the festivals Blacklight Film Festival. It started in '82 and it lasted and it la- and it ended in 1993. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. I was I was done. <laughs> I was done. I was I was ready to go off and make some money, you know. And I uh, ended up in England working in a multimedia company called uh, it was uh, it was called Artemis. So I worked for two two multimedia companies. One was called Artemis, and the other one was called. Uh, Studio Blank I was working with a guy who was a producer for the uh, Cure, for this, this uh, mm-hmm. rock group, and he started a multimedia company for us to do DVDs. We started doing DVDs, and in the middle of the DVD production, the internet got graphic. You know? Right. 
and and we started building websites and things, you know, but I had been doing stuff for like, uh, for, you know, doing interactive CDs for, uh, for punk rock groups and things when I was living, living, living in, in London. Uh, we, we had an office in uh, Fitzrovia, uh, above, uh, this, this like, this like radio, what was it? The Acura had a radio station back then. Can't remember okay. what it's called. That is, yeah, I can't remember, remember what it's called. I think was it Kiss F? It might have been Kiss, Kiss K I S S F M. They were downstairs, and we had a and we had the recording studio upstairs. We were using as a uh, as a uh, uh, as um, uh, as a lab for your yeah. experimental stuff. Well, you know, for uh, developing the uh, DVDs. And oh, 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 that kind of lab. Okay, yeah, all yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, and I had been working with, um, also worked with this company, Artemis. I worked with uh, Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. and Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. Dave McKean. Dave McKean is probably one of the greatest fine artists out there, man. I mean, he has very dark vision, but, a, but an incredibly imaginative guy. So I worked with him for for a couple of minutes. Um yeah, and that you know, uh, I, I actually came back here before they started shooting uh, this film, um, uh, Mirror, Mirror Mask. So I worked with all of the animators on that film before I came home in uh, 2000. The yeah, Neil 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 Gaiman, what what did, what did Neil Gaiman do? He did something real famous in terms of graphic novels. Um, Dave McKean had illustrated uh, at um, Ar- Arkham Asylum, the uh, Batman graphic novels. Before mm-hmm. I, I started working with him, I went and worked with with uh, with. Um, I did Dave's website for him, for this project called uh, Mr. Punch, which was one of Neil Neil Gaiman's graphic novels, and they mm-hmm. were doing a DVD of uh, Mr. Punch, and that required a lot of different skills. So so I, so I kind of like was self taught in. Uh, Hung around a lot of people and kind of acted as an apprentice. I, I, I learned it, you know. I learned stuff the way that I always did. I mean, I always worked for the best photographers, you know. And then I got around the best, uh, uh, the uh, best tech technology people, but creative technical people. I mean, like not like straight up kind of kind of IBM, Microsoft guys. I got with guys that were foreign artists who were figuring out how to use technology, you know. Right um, now, yeah, I got. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, at, at that at that time, were did you ha- have your own work to, um, to to work on? I mean, were you were you doing any of your own projects, or or you were know, you? I was, I was doing I was ahead. doing little things. I was doing little things, but nothing I was really ready to show. Um, right. I, but I was helping. But like uh, I helped. Like I was associate producer on Julie Dash's film Daughters of the Dust. So we've had a friendship, you know, since since before then actually. Because we went we met in nineteen seventy nine in New York at the first black black filmmakers conference that was held by Black uh, uh Black Filmmakers Foundation. And uh and I had gone out to visit them out at UCLA with all the people in the LA Re- rebellion and uh, I started showing all their films. You know, I gave them an you know I gave them an outlet for their films through through the Black Light Film Festival. So we were showing right. all of that work. Back then, uh, back back in the uh, back in the early early nineties. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. Back in the 
back in the mid eighties, back back in the mid eighties we we were we were doing that. And um uh so so I've known Julie since then. So I've helped Julie with a lot of creative projects and we did a, a we did a project called Digital Diva, which was supposed to be the sequel to Daughters of the Dust. Which is about uh this young woman who was taught cryptography by her, her grandfather. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she gets involved in the so- social movement as a cryptographer, you know, and uh, um, and so we put together a little little thing for her to sell sell the film. But, you know, but, like, I've done little things here and there, and I've worked with a lot of people. I worked with St. Clair Bourne for a while. I worked with uh, John Acomfra. Uh We did, like, the first, one of the first pieces that, that looks at black science fiction. A film called okay. the, last Angel, the Last Angel of uh, of, of uh, History that was done, I think, back in about 1993 or 93 or 94. I, I think it was 94. Yeah, last last Angel of History. You know, mm-hmm. I work with Dave, yeah, I work with Dave McKean on some of his short films. I worked with uh, Menelik Shabazz, Saint Clair Bourne. I worked with him on a thing called Chicago Blues. Uh, uh, called Big Big City Blues. It was for CBS Documentaries. Um, I worked with uh, worked on a. Uh, I was a local producer for a film called uh, The World and That King Cole, which was shot here in Chicago. Um, and I worked on various things with French and German and British British TV. You know, uh, so so I so I kept kind of busy. Now my work is. I'm still doing stuff. I got stuff going on right now. I'm finishing up a documentary. You know, I keep a lot of stuff going at the same time because you just okay. you, you just never know where the money's going to come from. So that is true. Yeah. So the most active thing I got going now is a piece on Yasuke, the uh, the uh, African samurai who was with Oda Nobunaga during the uh, Sengaku period, the uh, warring period in in Japan. Where we started mm-hmm. research and development on a documentary and a uh, feature film series about his life, about you know about how he ended up in Japan, um, and we've been doing a lot of research on that. And we just got a French partner, and we'll see how it goes. But um, do, do you consider your work primarily today as a documentarian? Um, yeah, I'm primarily doing documentaries right now. I'm going to go. I'm going to go into features, but I, but I want to. I want to get some stuff done in documentary first. Um, I want to be quite honest. It's like having worked on feature films. You know, it's like I feel like it's carnival work. It's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of trauma. You put the Ferris wheel up, you take the Ferris wheel down. You put the Ferris wheel up, you take the Ferris wheel down. And I did that for a while. But on documentary films, I work with smaller crews. There's actually a lot of really insightful conversation that goes along with it. There's uh, in the planning stage, yeah, in, in the planning and in the uh, production too. I mean, in, yeah, in, in execution as well. Oh, oh, definitely. Oh my God, for documentary man, I mean, you get to do, you know, you can if you you have to see a John Comfort doc- documentary. I mean, John Comfort is one of my favorite documentary filmmakers. And I'm so grateful that I got to to work work with, with uh, somebody like him. And, and what was the what was 
what was the significant um, uh, features or the, the significant experience of working with them? Well, watching how he how he created the uh, visual, the his visuals, how he created the looks of his films, you know, um, watching how they pulled the visual sections of it together, because it's easy to pull together a documentary, but to give it a specific kind of a style, a specific kind of a visual style, right? Something no one's ever seen before, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you know, from that into the grading of the of the finished film, right? There's a, you know, there's just there's like so much you can do, you know. Like right now, everybody thinks they're a filmmaker because they got a camera and they got editing. But if you don't know about grading, if you don't know about composition, if you don't know cinematic principles, you're just shooting video, you know. And yeah. the question, like, you know, go ahead. And it's it's like I'm old school like that. It's like um. I want to bring some kind of cinematic principles of what I'm doing. You know, I mean, like mm-hmm. I fought, you know, like I'm guilty of like using the video, like I'll, I'll, I'll shoot some stuff just so I have it because I don't want to ever lose things. So like, like a lot of the documentaries I do, I'm dealing with old people from, 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 from situations years ago and these people are dying off. So if I don't have the light to the, or the lens that I need, I got to make a choice. You know, it's like, it's like, Content over style, you know. It's like get get the content and then find and then find a way to stylize the wrapper for the content. You know. Okay, you so you said that like. you've worked with, yeah. You said you've worked with some of the, um, and you have. You you've worked with some of the, you know, some some of the most innovative documentarians. What, have you had any formal training, or were you just really lucky to be able to learn? From some of the best out there, I've been I've been an apprentice. I've I've been an apprentice. I you know, I spent the summer in L.A. one time, hanging out with Julie, living over at Charles 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 Burnett's house. Um, you know Saint Saint Clair Bourne, man. I met Saint Clair Bourne, and, and we hit it off. I, I met him at Fastest, and we hit it off. And the next thing I know, I was working for him. And when I'd go to New York, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he told me I was I was welcome to stay there anytime, and he introduced me to everybody in New York, from Amiri Baraka uh, to uh, Max Roach, everybody, man. I mean, Saint Clair, man. Once I, you know, I'm 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 extremely fortunate. I'm extremely fortunate, you know. But like part of that mm-hmm. fortune is like I never really needed anything from anybody, and I think people re- appreciated that, you know. I mean, I think I got so because I didn't need anything, or, or I mean, I always need some, but I didn't need it from them. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's yeah, like, you didn't impose. You didn't impose like some people. I didn't impose. No, 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 I didn't impose. You know, I was always resourceful. I was always doing something. You know, I, I always mm-hmm. had places to go and things to do. I was always checking stuff out. You know, I got to New York. One of the first things I discovered was the uh, was the uh, TV archive. Was the uh, muse, Museum of Broadcasting. Archives, and I was down there looking at stuff all the time. I got to go back to, again soon there, and find some things that I'm looking for, for a doc documentary that I'm working on. I got to go through. I've got a secret in what's my line to find this guy that I'm doing a film about. Yeah. The TV show? Huh? Yeah. The, t- yeah. the the game shows. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 The game show. Yeah. All right. Let's do so, this. Hmm. Let's let's take a project that you're working on now. 
your project, one of yours. Okay. okay. And then let's let's okay. start from the very beginning. Give me, let's take the a, a single project. Tell me what it was about this project that attracted you to it, and then kind of run down some of the steps that you took to to get ramped up to do the project. Okay. When I was going to school in Chinatown, from the first, mm-hmm. from literally the first year I went to school in Chinatown, from like first, from kindergarten into first grade, I spent like three weeks in kindergarten and they threw me in the first grade. From first grade on until I left that school, every day was always talking about He's just like that little Robert Lawrence, just like that little Robert Lawrence. All I heard from these teachers, from the first grade to the sixth grade, all I heard, right. when I was in eighth grade, I was sick of Robert Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. Then one day, my teacher shows me a picture of Robert Lawrence. Robert Lawrence is a jet fighter pilot who's teaching Germans to fly jet fighters. Mm-hmm. I'm in love with, with, with Robert Lawrence, man. Now, oh, oh, really? I'm like him? Like, wow. You know. But then it, but, but then it gets worse, right? Uh, I graduate from there. I go away to Lindblom, and I'm in Lindblom. And, um, and that summer that I uh, – and that summer, what was that, 67? Right, 1966. Uh, right, I come back to Chicago from Fort Benning, Georgia, and Robert Lawrence has has become an astronaut. And I'm like, what the heck? Now, Robert <laughs> Lawrence lived on twenty. I lived at twenty three ten South State Street. Robert okay. Lawrence grew up. Lawrence Robert Lawrence grew up right there. He lived in. He lived on twenty third and State before the projects were built. Right. Okay. So I basically grew up in the same community as him, went to the same elementary school, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and later on in life, I found out how he died. So he was he was he was designated an astronaut. So he went into astronaut training in July 1967. Um, he was uh, uh, he 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 became an astronaut in like August. I think it was in August, he got, uh, no, in June 1967, he became an astronaut. By the end of July, he had become uh, uh, a crew on this spy mission for the CIA at a space station. By December, he was dead. He died in a plane crash, in in a plane that he wasn't flying. A plane that he wasn't flying, but the pilot lived. Suck my dick, little bitch ass nigga. I'm a real nigga and I'm from the nigga. Looking at me and I'm looking at you. What the heck is that? I, I have no idea. Who was that? Someone Did who called that? in acting an ass. Yes, no, it's okay. Oh, okay. Anyway, anyway so, so, you know, from your yeah. teachers saying he's yeah. just like, he's just like, then yeah. you find out who he is, and then now, now I want to be like him, but but right, but the revolution interfered. 
by the time, man, by the time 1968 came, by the time, by the end of 1967, I didn't want nothing to do with the military. Uh, right. I had friends. I had friends being killed. You know, I had yeah. people going to jail. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I was living in Maywood. You know, uh, I was at the first Black Panther office on Madison Avenue, on, on, on Madison, on 13th and Madison in Maywood before they moved downtown. Right. And by the time, and by, and before I get out of high school, Fred Hampton is murdered. And all these other people have been right. murdered. Suck my dick, you little ass nigga. Looking at me when I'm in the mirror. I don't understand what you're talking about. You should record, guys. No, no. I didn't um, get your recording I, contract, man. That was a great record. <laughs> <laughs> For a retired person. Um, anyway. How does, he, how does he break in? No, all he has to do is dial in, and then Jarvis has to just catch him and mute him. Oh, okay. Ah, okay. So this is a kind of a flawed system. Well, it's not flawed. It's just that yeah. we rely on the on the maturity of the people oh, who enjoy oh, okay. the system. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Anyway, man, so 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 yeah. So that's a film. So so that film. Then I found out about you know like once I did some research on him, and um, uh, I found out about the first the first guy to be uh, put in astronaut training. First black guy to be put in astronaut training by John Kennedy in 1960, I guess it was 1962. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and this guy uh, is in the astronaut training program, and they don't really want him there. He's a Jim, Jim Crow master. So I started a space race, right, about these first two astronauts who never went into space. Right. You know? And that's and that's a, and that's something that I've got on the that's something that I've got on the books now and I and I'm actually going to make a little a uh, little like five minute piece I think uh, maybe uh, after I finish I got this film series on right 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 now mm-hmm. and two interns I'm working with so once I finish this stuff I'm going to probably make a, a couple of five minute pieces about both of them just just okay. what what happened to them but you know as a prelude to the actual documentary you know. Um, the, the website is up at space-race.net to give people okay. a, a, a sense of what it is that I'm working on, you know. And um, what I've done is uh, I've, uh, I'm in contact with uh, – I'm in contact niggas, with – Niggas, 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 niggas ain't shit. Niggas, 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 all they do is talk dick. Niggas, niggas. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. Does this person's well, mother know what he's up to anyway? Well, yeah, but obviously some village is missing its idiot. That's all. <laughs> anyway. You should, a, you should have a high-pitched whine that breaks eardrums for people like that. No, no, because you know what? You know, you don't want to, you don't want to really, I mean, come on. <laughs> the the handicaps are so fun to watch. I was just kidding. Anyway. Just kidding. Yeah. So so no man it, it's um so that project I've I've done all the research I'm in touch with the with with the um the the first guy who became an astronaut uh uh-huh. Edward Wright he got drummed out of the astronaut program after John Kennedy was killed but but he landed on his feet he's a sculptor he's a he's a he he's he's a monumental sculptor 
he made the uh, Harold Washington statue up on 47th Street. He makes monumental sculptures around the country, you know, for for yeah. everybody. For all kinds of cities and municipalities. He has his own foundry in in Denver. So he's around. He's in in his 80s, and I've got to get out to interview him. And uh, there's a bunch of people who went to school with Robert Lawrence here. His wife just died. Uh, Robert Lawrence's wife just died uh, last right. year, actually. And um, and there's people that I that I know, so I can pull together his story pretty easily, you know. But I've just got to get um, you know, uh, I got to I got to slow down and and kind of focus on it for a minute, you know. But this Japanese project, uh, the one on, on uh, Yasuke, the original Afro Samurai. This okay. One, man, the, the research is so intense, you know. I'm lucky because I got a because I got a producer in Tokyo to work with me. Who's done this kind of thing before? She did a series. Of, her name was uh, her name was Deborah Desnou, D E N S N O O, and she did a series for PBS called Japan's uh, mm-hmm. Memoirs of a Secret Empire. Uh, she did that back in I think 2008 for um, for uh, public television, and so she's she's done this before, so she knows what the research is like, and I and like I don't have to, you know, and so when so we could talk about this thing and be on the same page because we understand the importance of really being historically accurate. You know, sure. uh, a lot of people run sure. around saying things like Yasuke was, you know, you look on the internet, you know, he was a slave who ended up in Japan and blah, 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 blah. The man was no slave. The guy was a warrior who was contracted as a bodyguard to a, uh, to a uh, Jesuit official, right? He was mm-hmm. a bodyguard. The guy was over six feet tall, you know? And uh, and and he was good with and, and he was good with a sword. He never could have got into he never could have got he never could have got into the presence of uh, Oda Nobunaga if he wasn't an imposing figure and a powerful fighter. That just wasn't right. possible. If he was a slave, he never would have got there. You know, he, matter of fact, Nobunaga would never have even paid attention to him. You know, yeah. Uh, and no, Nobunaga was kind of like Peter the Great in a way, who comes along a couple of centuries later. Um, and that he wanted, uh, he uh, he believed in a meritocracy, right? He didn't, you know, he didn't believe that people should should get position and status just because they were born into it. He liked people who could work their way up from 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 uh, from things. And so sure. he was. So so uh, Nobunaga was doing something very different, the same way Peter the Great was. Peter the Great, you know, uh, Pushkin's grandfather was an African. Who was brought into who was who was brought into the service of Peter? Now uh, Pushkin's grandfather was a slave. He was he, uh, uh, he was uh, he worked in a uh, uh, he worked in a uh, harem as, mm-hmm. as a page in Turkey. He had been kid, kidnapped from Africa, but um, but he was kidnapped again and taken to Russia and became the right hand man of Peter the Great. You know, so stories like that are, see, stories like that are what attracts me. You know, so the story about uh, the story about Yasuke, story about Pushkin's grandfather, you know, uh, the story about these two two astronauts, you know, these these are the types of things that actually motivate me. But the thing is, the thing that's elusive is getting the money, getting the money, son. (laughs) You know. Well, I mean, that it. You know, no matter what kind of creative you are, you know the. Trying to make a living off of what you do is not an automatic process. 
you know, it's not it's not just because you decide to do something, all of a sudden you have the wherewithal to do it. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the kinds of projects that you have are pretty ambitious, you mm-hmm. know, because you've got, you know, you uh, just the one, if you have to travel to Japan in order to do the production work that you need to do, that's that's pretty expensive travel. Yeah. That's a certain well, amount of commitment. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's the reason I got people in Japan. You know, that, that's the reason I'm glad that I got a Japanese producer. So I don't have to I don't have to worry so much about that. You know, there's stuff that you know, like I've uh, I've I've actually produced I've actually produced and directed films re, re, remotely. You know, so there's things I can do without going to places now. Of course, yeah. I'm well, I mean, eventually, but it isn't like it isn't absolutely. If if I got competent people on the ground, you know, I can, right. I, I can make it happen. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have to go. I can, I can sit on the beach and watch it happen on my laptop. <laughs> well, that is true, but um, I I know you well enough to know that first of all, you don't take it lightly, and second of all, you want to produce something substantive. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and um, and I'm, you know, I am, you know, I'm 63, right? So yeah, you know, and I've done a lot of traveling already, and I'm, you know, and I'm just wondering, am I going to be able to? to sustain that level of travel that I was doing when I was 30 or even 40 at that, you know, at this, and the thing is I stopped, you know, I came back here in 2000 and I've been back here ever since because I, uh, because my son was growing up. Right. So, so I stayed sure. and this is the longest period that I've been here since I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I left what I left the country when I was 20 and, uh, and I was traveling until, I was, wow, I was traveling until I was almost 50. Yeah, you know? yeah. And um, and now I've stopped, and I'm like, hmm, do I want to do that? <laughs> you, know, you know, do I want to get a, and plus traveling isn't the way it used, traveling is not as easy as it used to be. You know what I mean? No, it's not. You know, these airports, it's not. Dealing with the stuff, taking your shoes, uh, you know, all this kind of crap. You know, it's, it's, it's like sometimes I don't, you know, standing in a security line, I don't even think it's I don't even think it's worth it a lot of times. And now, like what I do when I travel is I leave I leave on the earliest or the latest flight. Usually the earliest flight, because the latest flights have become extremely expensive. You know, I used to fly mid- midnight all the time. Man, a, a real yeah. is twice as much as a six a.m. flight. You know. Yeah. So so I so I try to get to the airport five thirty in the morning, man, to get in that first flight, so I don't have to worry about. You know, long lines and all that stuff. You know, and plus, you know, most things that happen in airports happen around nine o'clock in the morning because they 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 want maximum traffic. You know, so sure. So I'm well, always you know, there. one of one of the benefits of your life right now, as we're sitting here, is that there is so much that has happened, that is happening, and will happen in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, and and it's it's huge. I mean, in terms of culture, this city. I mean, yeah, there are other cities that have culture, but you know what? You can't compare Chicago to Atlanta, or excuse me, Atlanta to Chicago, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there 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 are so many things that you could do um, here in Chicago that that and and with the kind of research you do and your attention to detail. Um, 
you know, I I can't see why you can't continue doing this for quite some time. I mean, we've met. You're mm-hmm. you're still. It's not like you're infirm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You still oh, you no, still no, got no. that get up and go. You still yeah. you know you know what you could do. You could actually do a documentary on um this uh, uh Japanese Negro science fiction writer that I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And that's not you know, bad because, because because you know I got a streaming uh I got a streaming video channel online. Do you really? Uh, well, tell us yeah. about that. How do how do people find that? bwctv.tv Say it again. Black World, it's BWC, B for Boy. Oh, B. Okay. B for Charlie. Yeah. TV. And then that TV. Okay. BWC, TV, dot TV. TV. Cool. Right. Right. All right. I'm I'm putting that in the chat room so that the people who are looking online right now, yeah. except and for our rapping site, friend. Yeah. And uh, that site, I'm including all kinds of things on it. You know, it, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a black streaming video channel, but I don't have, the, uh-huh. I've got like, I've got lots of uh, public domain stuff. I've got a science fiction section. Uh, I'm going to do Afrofuturism section. I'm, I'm going to create a lot of footage. I mean, a, a lot of original programming. I want to do news. I want to do hard news. I want to do hard news every week because it's important that we have, you know, that we can create uh, a news service we can trust, you know. And well, independent news because corporate yeah. news isn't news at all. It's entertainment. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I'm um, so I'm looking to, you know, I got to, you know, I got to, I I got a, a good number of uh, subscribers already, but I want to get up to ten thousand subscribers in a year, and that way it's it's sustainable. You know, like I'm charging seven ninety nine a month. I'm not trying to be Netflix. I'm not trying to be Hulu. I'm trying to build something entirely new and something an entirely alternative kind of service for people. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we can talk about that. I mean, I think that would be good. You know, to do that, I'd like to do all all kinds of offers. You know, I'd like to be able to do something every month, or like every other week. You know, on 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 literature, because it doesn't take a whole lot to do this. I mean, the thing about it is, it's got to be good. You know, it's got to look good. It's got to sound good. You know. Well, and um, and and the bottom line is, is content is king. Okay, right. so if you have content that people can't get someplace else, and you have content that is interesting then then people will eventually find you and word of mouth is going to help you you know right right you know and so i'm right now what i'm doing is i'm building an app i'm building i've already got an app for um you know we we do this monthly film series uh black world cinema and this month we're doing um we're doing Black Future Month. We don't we don't we don't say Black History Month anymore. We say Black Future. Everybody does Black Black History Month. We want to do Black Future Month, right? Because you, you want to look forward and not back. Right, right, right. I mean, like we're you know we're looking back every day. I want to I want to take a period and look 
I always look forward and talk about Afrofuturism, talk about science fiction, talk about science, you know, talk about science itself, you know, and right. uh, I, want, I want to create a platform for that for, for that every year. And I think it's, it's appropriate to do it during, during what's called Black History Month, you know, because everybody in the Mama got a black history program going on. And why compete with what everybody else is doing? Let's do something different. Let's offer something different. Last night, we showed Daughters of the Dust, the film that I worked on with uh, Judy mm-hmm. Dad. Um, and, uh, and we looked at the film. It's a film from, that's, made in, that's made about a period of, in, in 1900 on the Sea Islands. But I said, let's look at it from an Afro, Afrofuturist perspective. You know, like, like right. let's look at this. What's made this film last for 25 years? Everybody still wants to see this film uh, 25 years later. What, what, what was it about this film that made Beyonce want to use images from that film in her Lemonade video, you know? Right. Uh, and that's what we talked about, about what were the features of that film that were futuristic enough to influence people over 25 years. That, that, man, when that film was made, let me tell you, them Negroes in Hollywood got on my last nerve about that. They didn't like, Daughter, they didn't like Daughters of the Test because it was a woman's movie. They didn't like the film because it had a nonlinear narrative, right? They didn't like it because it wasn't boys in the hood or it wasn't a boys film, you know? And they laughed at the film. And then I was at a dinner, and they were laughing at the film. And I told them, and I stopped these guys, I said, you know what? 25 years from now, nobody's going to remember the film. You did. Nobody's going to remember the film. You did. They're going to probably remember Minutes to Society, but not really. It ain't going to end up in the <laughs> National Archives, you know. Right. Julius Film was like I said, it's in the National Archives. I called it because that's the reason I worked on the project, right? Because I in the first place, it. yeah. Yeah, you know, like like hey, I had an opportunity to work on House Party Two and House Party Three, you know, and 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 House Party Three definitely. Wait, I, look, I skipped over. I was the, the week I was supposed to the, the week I was leaving to go work on Julius Film. The people from Hoop right. Dreams called me. Okay, the people from Hoop Dreams called me to come work on the film, right? And I told them no, I'm going to work on Julie Dasher. They couldn't believe I was telling them no. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I was really not that fond of the film, truth be told. And okay. Even though the film got Academy Award and all that stuff, it's great for them. Don't you know? Didn't do nothing for me. You know, at least with daughters, yeah. it was something I believed in. You know, right? It was right. something that I knew was going to have resonance. You know, and I've been proven right time and time again. And um, and like you know, it doesn't matter to me if you know. It, it's like I always told myself, look, I got a kid that's a great kid. I, I raised you know, me and my, me and his mom, we raised a great human being. If I did nothing else in life, at least I did that. If I never right. work on another film, I would rather have my film on Daughters of the Dust than on a ton of boys in the gangbanging movies, right? You know, because well, this you know, film has resonance. This film has resonance, you know? Not only that, but one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of people are risk-averse about putting something new out there. And, and that goes for any genre including Afrofuturism, there are a lot of people who are scared to do something that's never been done before. Yeah. And, excuse me. If you can, if you can 
mine, M-I-N-E, you know, the new, the different, that's probably going to make a big difference in, in terms of your own commercial sustainability. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and that's the thing is to keep it fresh. Keep it fresh. And if you do yeah, that, and keep that fresh, you know. You you could go backwards. I mean, you know, like I you know, I got short stories that I've written, and it's, you know, based on travels that I did, you know, based on stuff I did while I was at I was a cook on a boat one time. Uh, on, I was a cook on a ship. And some weird stuff happened, man. I mean, some really weird atmospheric thing happened that made me right. write, this, write this, write a couple of stories about this really strange thing that ha- things that happened out on the open sea, you know. Um, but yeah, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just having fun, man. I'm like, you know, I ain't rich, but I'm happy. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, isn't that important? And also, isn't that a good value to to, yeah. to show your kid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm having fun. I'm, I'm still having fun when I get down to it. You know, there's always rough spots, but I'm always having fun. Yeah. yeah well, you know, later on, later on, if you need any help, if you, you know, if there's any way I can help at all, let me know, okay? Okay. Um, well, we should talk because. Because, like, I really do want to do these original pieces, you know, and, and, like, stuff on literature. You know, we can talk about your books. You know, we can do a profile on you. You know, I can do a profile well, on writers in the city. You know what I mean? People well, see yeah, but I also have a production team. I have about uh, 250 people I can draw upon if you need to do oh, stuff. Really? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, you told me that you um, were doing a Based on uh, out there where you are. Well, I here's the next thing that you know. I, I this is supposed to be about you, but here's the next thing that I'm doing. Um, I want to. Uh, I've got my videographer. He's in um, Bloomington, Indiana, and we are on track to find somewhere between a million and two million dollars to do a feature film. Uh huh. And one of the things that you could do is you could wander around and do a documentary about the making of, uh-huh. because it's completely it's a completely independent project, and it's it's using Chicago as a as a character, and uh, you know it's it. it It'll be interesting to see how an independent film gets, you know, goes from start to finish, especially for a guy like me who hasn't done a feature film to get, you know, over a million dollars to do a film. That's a miracle in itself, you know. So, anywho, um, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, now I can hear you. Um, okay. So yeah, but but we'll we'll talk offline. Um, now uh, talk about you know you've got these other I don't I don't know if I should call them ventures or whatever, but um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Afrofuturism eight forty nine? Yeah, that, you know I started Afrofuturism eight forty nine dot com with Yatasha Womack, so we could do some. So we could do some like educational sessions, you know, we could do some 
know, just to bring people together and and talk about Afrofuturism, do book readings, you know, do readings, you know, watch videotapes, just to kind of get into the feeling of it. I mean, like this this uh, this film competition that I did, man, I didn't get that many films from people here, you know, and I'm surprised. I'm really surprised that I didn't get that much stuff. As much as people talk about Afrofuturism, ain't nobody making that. Well, I'm not, you know, I'll even admit, I'll even admit that, that the film, the two films that I want to do, neither are, well, one could conceivably be considered, you know, Afrofuturism or, you know, Afrofuturism, and well, that is well, an well, urban, I'm sorry. It's, it's a blanket term, right? I, I say Afrofuturism as a blanket term, but just sci-fi period, you know, like I'm not getting any, I'm trying to. You know, I wanted to create, I did the film competition to create a vehicle so that people knew that they had an outlet for their films, right? Right. So people know right. that the black sci-fi competition, that they'll, like, start doing work. And they don't have to do a feature film. They could do short, short films, you know? And it didn't cost yeah. anything. I mean, I got 1,500 entries, but 90% of them didn't even apply to what I was talking about because it was free, you know? You know, I got mm-hmm, films from mm-hmm. India. I got films from India. I got films from Pakistan. I got films from from Finland, Germany. You know, I got fifteen hundred entries. You know, and only I, I got fifteen hundred entries, and only one hundred twenty of them were actual science fiction. Sure. And of sure. that one hundred twenty, and of that, and of that one hundred twenty, I only ended up with thirty three that that were worth using. You know. Okay. And of that thirty three, still- I've got. And of, and of, and 33 is still a lot. Yeah, yeah. I got, and of that, I got six finalists. And uh, I'm going to finish finish those on the weekend. See, I could have got you to help me judge those if we had a talk earlier. Oh, yeah. You know what? We'll, we'll, we'll exchange phone numbers later. But definitely let's keep in touch because, I mean, we're both in this town. We're both committed to the artistic community in this town. We're both committed to, to black art. Afrofuturism, you know, black-related uh, uh, creativity. <laughs> so, because, you know, why, you talk about being, you know, whatever, 63, but you still have the enthusiasm of somebody who wants to do things, you know? Yeah. And, and, yeah. That, and that should not be squandered. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying, man. This is a, this is crazy stuff. Yeah, we got about we got about ten minutes. I, I want to ask you two questions, which mm-hmm. should help us close it out. But the first is, what is what is the best part of what you've been doing, maybe for the last five to ten years? The best part. Yeah, you you want to know? Like, I worried about like not traveling when I came back because I oh. really didn't want to come back, but. Sure. The thing about it is, I'm in touch. Like this morning, when I woke up this morning, I get a. Uh, I'm on. A, uh, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. I'm on Signal, and I'm on WhatsApp, right? And uh-huh. I'm in touch with all my friends abroad, like every day. You know, it, it's a. I mean, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, and it's so fluid. You know, and I'm able to do business in a stationary manner, you know, it's like, 
I, you know, I know the one thing I know is I can go any place and it'll and it'll be like I haven't gone any place. So sure. if I leave here, if I leave here and move to Tanzania for six months, we'll be able to talk every day just like this. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like yes, that's kind of for me. That's the best thing: being able to be connected, to to stay connected to people, and to stay active, and to be doing things all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. That's because it's a, it's the connectivity with people we know with artistic people we know and being able to talk to people who understand what you're talking about. You know, I remember man talking to this girl and we talked about 15, 20 minutes and she said, I don't understand a thing you're talking about. And I said, I get that. <laughs> and I just left her alone. She was, she was the cutest little thing, man, but it was just like, I can't deal with this. <laughs> you know, I can't, you know, I, and it's like, I'm, and it's not like I'm being snobbish or anything. It's just like you want to be able to communicate. You want to be able to, you know, to, to give people, you know, like, you know, like I got friends, man. And, you know, I got friends I can talk about different things with, man. Like there ain't a lot of people I can talk to about, about, about Bernard Stigler's book, Stupidity and Knowledge in the 21st Century, a, a, book, of, a book of modern philosophy, right, that's dealing with right. the situation we're in right now. You know what I mean? Because people don't know who who uh, who uh, who uh, Bernard Stigler is, you know. I, I mean, it's like that that stuff gets me some sometimes, you know, because people just aren't curious. You know, people just aren't intellectually curious about this kind of stuff. Right. And I am, you know, and so I have to know a whole lot of different people, you know. I, I gotta be, you know, I gotta be stimulated. I need that different kind of, of stimulation. You know? I mean, Chicago, man, is great in a whole lot of ways. But in another way, Chicago is a backwater town, you know? And and everybody thinks that they're all hip, but not really. I mean, there's a lot of hip stuff going on here. It's hipper than it was 20 years ago for sure, you know? Mm-hmm. Still, you know, but Chicago is still, man, kind of, you know, you got to get out of here a lot. You know, everybody needs to get out of here. Everybody needs to go. Everybody needs to be on the move, right? Because you, um, it's about, it's it's like, I got term limits in cities. You know, my ideal thing is to live in Tanzania for, in, live in Tanzania in the wintertime, live in Tanzania in the, in the wintertime. Go to Tanzania, go to Brazil, because it's summertime in Brazil now, right? Right. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And then come back here, and then come back here like May. <laughs> you know, get out, of, I, you get know, out of here in September, I'm, October. And come back in May. That's the ideal life for me. <laughs> I'm getting more and more to your perspective because you know what? I I am not digging these winters. Like I said, I'm in the Danny Glover uh, club as as far as tolerating inclement weather. And that the Danny uh-huh. Glover club is the I'm getting too old for this shit club. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. But but you're you're definitely right about you know having per, getting another perspective going someplace else seeing how other people are because it's going to expand your mind you know we used to take it for granted that uh somebody would go away to college learn how to be an adult you know maybe do a little travel maybe do uh, uh, a year of exchange excuse me something like that and and for the most part for the average college student let's say that's kind that's kind of over you know so uh, 
you know, how are people going to get a perspective of a foreign culture or, or to just build the talent to step outside themselves so that they can understand another perspective. So I, I see, I see what you're saying as, as one of the, the great necessities of life, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I um, sent both my sons to Paris. All right, I, I sent yeah. both. I sent yeah, I sent both of them when they were when they were twenty. I sent both of them to Paris. I got friends there that they can stay with, so they don't have to worry about paying because I wanted them to just get a perspective, you know, just to get another, just to get a sense of someplace else. You know, sure, because, sure. You know, and uh, my youngest son came back, man, and he was, you know, he was, you know, he went away up. Went away a pothead. Went to Amsterdam, stayed about a week, <laughs> and came back and and cured. <laughs> well, Amsterdam has it. Amsterdam has its own appeal. His mom didn't like it, but I'm like, hey, this is how you get this is how you get that stuff out the system. I I stopped smoking when I was when I was 13. Yeah, right? you know, I tried everything between 12 and 13, and I decided it wasn't for me. And I think everybody yeah, I, I, go, go through this curious phase. You know, everybody everybody has to experience this. You know, I sure. mean, it, you know, it, it isn't, there's nothing evil about it. You know, people are, are exploring. You know, it's like I'm more interested, you know, I'm actually more interested in, in like, psilocybin now at the age I am now than I ever was when I was 20. <laughs> well, you can take that vacation and not have to get off your couch. Well, you know, it's like it's like what I always thought it was, you know, and it's exactly what it's and, and it's exactly what Timothy Leary said it was, you know. But I couldn't trust anybody back then, right? So I never tried this stuff, you know. Uh, sure. And plus, and, and plus, I did a lot of meditation back then, so I was already off on some weird trips. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I mean, let me ask you this. Um, if there are people out there who pick who are listening tonight, or they pick this up as a podcast, and they have ideas that they would like to run past you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, they should send it to. Let me see which one. Send it to Floyd at BlackWorldCinema.net. Okay, please repeat that. Slowly. Floyd, Floyd at blackworldcinema.net. Uh-huh. Okay. Floyd at blackworldcinema.net. Yeah. All right. And um, um, is there – actually, I've got – what have I got up here? Here I've got uh, – well, I've got your Floyd Webb website up. People can take a look at that. And that's Floyd Webb with two Bs.com. And then uh, obviously for those people who want to take a look at the video content that you're, you're accumulating, that's BWCTV.TV. Yes. All right. So uh, that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you for hanging in at the beginning. Oh, no um, 
because you had some trouble getting in, which is why the show started a little late, which doesn't matter yeah. to podcast people. Yeah, yeah, that's um, okay. I understand how that goes. I really understand how that goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, what I'll do is if, uh, if, uh, if Jarvis can uh, do a quick little goodbye while he's swatting all these little flies that keep trying to jump on the line, um, he can he can give his little good night and we will we will close out the show. But I I want to thank you, Floyd, for making this easy. Um, you, it, you've got such a great body of work behind you, and um, you know I I really think that we should figure out some better ways to raise your work above the background noise, and then that way people people can find more about you. Um, okay. Oh. Oh wait! I think Jarvis asked me to uh, to uh, to close it out. So I want to thank everybody who listens to this show and supports the show, and uh, uh, I want to thank you, Floyd, for uh, dropping by because it's always good to get good, interesting people who have you know a lot of information that they can give to people out there. And I want to thank uh, I want to thank Jarvis for having put together. You know, not only BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, but uh, oh, yeah. to, to have had the to have had the um, the the foresight to put together a weekly show. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately for him, you know, I got this ankle bracelet, and I can be here every Friday. Uh, so, so it seems to work. It's a win-win for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I guess. Um, that's really about it. Do you have any last words, that, uh, any last uh, uh, wisdom yeah. that you want to talk about? I'm love, sorry? Black Science Fiction Society, I love everything that they're doing. I love the fact that it's a community that you can go to every day and talk to people. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that is yeah, a, it is kind of powerful. So community is an important thing, you know, and we really need community like that, you know. And a lot of people just don't have it. I mean, that's how I I wouldn't be where I am today without the photographer's community at Southside Community Art Center. You know? Sure. I mean, that was where I was born, literally, as a professional. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. So being around people who do what we do and the way we support each other really makes things possible. It really yeah. does. And people, people should not discount networking because – you know, I know a lot of people are paranoid about exposing their ideas to other people because they think they may get stolen or whatever. Yeah, but still, yeah. you know, there there is nothing that says to be successful you have to go it alone, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, if you're not if, – if you ain't networking, you're not working, as I was wondering. <laughs> all, all right. right. Thank you, well, guys. Look. I really appreciate you all. Um, hanging in there through our technical difficulties and through our um, little clowns that were jumping on here. But all the content that was on here tonight, you guys made it well worth it, and it was very useful information. And it was good to get to know um, Floyd a little more in person and to find out some of the projects he was working on. Charles, thanks for asking me, man. Oh, anytime. That's what we do. Okay. All right. We'll be in touch. All right. Take care, man. Okay, take care. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to close out the night. I want to thank you, Floyd. I want to thank you, Jarvis. I want to thank everybody who makes 
who makes our universe, our creative universe possible. And uh, we will be seeing all of you next week with a brand new guest. So all everybody right. have a great week ahead of you. Okay, right, good night. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.